welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here, we were in chapter 27 and we were dealing with basically three things. That is how Judas had began to feel remorse over what he had done. And we want to remember that the remorse that Judas felt was not true repentance. It was a regret because of the outcome of how things had happened. But nevertheless, Judas became remorseful and went out and hung himself, giving back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief leaders of the people. They took this money, therefore, and bought a place in Judas's name, Hakadama, the field of blood, a place to bury strangers. Then we see where the chief priest had brought Jesus to Pilate in order to get a guilty verdict by the Romans. That is, they wanted to find Jesus guilty of sedition. And they took him before Pilate, who was the governor, and they railed so many accusations against Jesus that Jesus basically did not even try to defend himself against those accusations, knowing that he was not guilty of any of them. But nevertheless, Pilate marveled because Jesus did not defend himself. And also he himself began to try to get Jesus delivered from the hand of those who had turned him over to him. That is the chief elders and leaders of the people. And so as Pilate sought, it was a customary thing that during the Passover time, he would deliver to the people, to the Jewish people, whomever they had chosen, Pilate tried to use this mechanism to get Jesus set free, thinking to himself that the people would choose Jesus over Barabbas, who was a murderer, a robber, a thief, and one who had also caused sedition, that is, led a revolt against Rome. But being led by the chief leaders and elders of the people, the people began to cry out for Barabbas to be delivered to them. And Pilate, seeing that a riot was about to take place, acquiesced and simply gave Jesus over to their demands to be crucified and but as we see in Matthew's account, he just kind of put all of it together. He had Jesus scourged and then turned over to the soldiers to be crucified. Then after that, we see the mocking of the Roman soldiers as they brought Jesus and dressed him up as a so-called king and began to ridicule Jesus, beat him over the head when Jesus had that crown of thorns pressed into his scalp and beat him over the head with the rod, that reed that they had given him to act as a kingless scepter and mock him uh, as this particular king of Judah or king of the Jews. All right. Now with all of that, we continue on because the soldiers have now taken Jesus. They're going up the road and they have if, uh, uh, Jesus has been severely beaten because of the Roman scourging and then out of the persecution that he suffered through the night by the hands of the Jewish leaders, by the scourging of the Roman soldiers, and again by the mockery and beating of the Roman soldiers, Jesus is severely uh, uh, incapacitated to the point that he is not able to carry his own cross. And so therefore the Roman soldiers press Simon of Cyrene into service to help Jesus bear his cross on his way to be crucified. And with that, we start now with the remainder of chapter 27. And remember, as we get into chapter 27 of Matthew, or should we say ended, uh, we are only going to deal with, for the most part, Matthew's account. I want to remind you that the account of Jesus's crucifixions and the events that surrounded this crucifixion were in all four gospels. And in order to get a complete picture of everything that took place uh, in the crucifixion of Jesus, you have to harmonize, that is, bring together the gospels of all of the different accounts. But we are not going to do that because we are studying Matthew's account. Maybe from time to time, we might bring in certain elements to enlighten us from other gospel writers. But primarily, we are going to stick with Matthew's account. And what we see in the account of Matthew 
is a condensed version that deals with the crucifixion of Jesus. So Matthew doesn't go into a lot of the details that some of the other writers will go into. Matthew simply gives us a condensed version to simply say that Jesus, the Messiah, was crucified. Okay, now with all of that, let's continue to the very end of chapter 27, verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means a place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, as I said, if you are familiar with any of the other accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, you can see clearly that Matthew is giving a condensed version of this. He is simply letting us see that Jesus indeed was crucified. He didn't talk about the, the soldier that speared him. He didn't talk about, as we'll see later on, about the thief and the conversion of the thief. Matthew didn't get into all of those issues simply a shortened version. So let's look at what Matthew is saying. So they came to a place called Golgotha, which means a place of a skull. Now this was not because there were a number of skulls in that place. No, it was because they came to a particular hill and the hill had the appearance of a skull. And that's why they named the place Golgotha, a place of a skull because of what it looked like. And so as they are preparing Jesus for his crucifixion here, they're, get, they're, they're crucifying Jesus. They gave him wine mixed with gall. They gave him a mixed drink to drink. And after tasting it, Jesus was unwilling to drink it. What you have to understand is this particular drink that they gave Jesus was given to those who are being crucified in order to lessen the pain of crucifixion. It wouldn't completely deaden the pain. It didn't do that but it in some sense lessened the pain of crucifixion. That's why Jesus reacted in the way that he did. When Jesus tasted this particular concoction, knowing that it was designed to deaden, or should I say again, lessen the pain of the crucifixion that he was about to suffer, he refused to drink it. Why? Because Jesus desired to take upon himself the full measure of the father's wrath. He did not try to escape any of the pain because he knew and understood that what he would suffer at the cross was actually what we all justly deserve. So what Jesus was doing, not just simply on the cross itself in the taking of the nails and all of those things into his hands, or should we even say his wrist and his feet, not just only the pain of the cross, but he suffered the full judgment of God because why? He did not allow himself to escape any of the pain, any of the detrimental effects of what was taking place to him because all of these things are due rightly upon us. And Jesus wanted to take away the full and complete measure of our sins upon himself. So therefore, he could not try to reduce the pain. He could not escape the pain, but he had to bear the full weight of the judgment of God. And thank God for this, because in this way, Jesus becomes what for us? He becomes the perfect and complete savior. He becomes what? His sacrifice is a complete and totally and acceptable sacrifice. In other words, when Jesus offered up his body, when Jesus died on that cross, his body became a sacrifice for sin. So therefore, everything that was done to that body of Jesus had to be given in the sense of an offering of a sacrifice unto God. And God would only accept that sacrifice. He would only accept Jesus's offering of his body he would only declare that this offering was well-pleasing to him 
if he suffered the full judgment of God. And that is the beauty behind what Jesus is doing here. And that is the thanksgiving that we must give to Jesus for what he has done here. He willingly suffered the full wrath of God, the full judgment of God, the pains of the cross in totality. And just imagine in your mind as those other men who were beside Jesus readily drank this concoction to try to find some sense of relief, but our Lord did not. But anyway, so that's the beauty of it. And then we see the Roman soldiers also, all of this is in the crucifixion as Matthew's just giving the condensed version of it, casting lots for Jesus' garment. They didn't get into the breakdown when they talked about the coat, the coat of Jesus being an expensive coat. And therefore, this is why they were casting lot. But nevertheless, this is a fulfillment. And for the most part, all of this particular part of, of, of Matthew 27 is a fulfillment of Psalm 22 that deal with the suffering servant of God. Okay. So we can look at that. Go back. If you haven't read Psalm 22, it would be a wonderful time to read this. And in Psalm 22, you will see a reflection of the suffering of Jesus on the cross and some of the events that are taking place while Jesus is literally on the cross and suffering. But anyway, so this is what it makes mention of, of how the soldiers took his clothes and uh, uh, separated it one with another, divided amongst themselves, and they were casting lots. That is like pulling the straw to see which one was the longer straw. That's kind of like a sense of casting lots. We don't know what measure that, that they took in the casting of the lots, but that's the idea, trying to determine who would get Jesus's seamless robe. But anyway, and so they sat down and they kept watch over Jesus while he hung on the cross. So also, too, we see that when a person was crucified, the charge had to be laid against them. Again, Matthew just simply gives us the condensed, ver condensed version concerning the charge. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And, you know, why do we say condensed version? And I'm not going to get into it because I keep saying I'm not going to just deal with Matthew. But you'll see where other places in the gospel had it was written in uh, Greek and Latin and in Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But nevertheless, what Rome would do is when a person was crucified over his cross, they would have the charge that led to this crucifixion. And that is Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews. So therefore the charge is clearly sedition. All right. So now let's continue. 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the right and one on the left. And those were pa those passing by were hurling abuse at him wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Okay, now we are at the time in which Jesus is hanging on the cross. And we know that in other gospels, it lets us know that Jesus was hung at uh, 9 a.m. is when they, they first hung Jesus at 9 a.m., the third hour. And so as he is hanging on the cross, he is hung between two thieves, one on the right, one on the left. And we see both of these thieves 
hurling insults at Jesus. Now, again, notice how Matthew gives a condensed account of this because he does not relate that later on, one of the thieves had a change of heart and therefore repented to Jesus and was saved. But it just simply shows, Matthew shows in his account in how both the thieves as well as the leaders of the Jewish people hurled accusations and blasphemed against Jesus while he was on the cross, mocking and ridiculing him, saying to him, remember the charge that they brought to Jesus before the Sanhedrin? You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. If you can do that, then come down from the cross. And, and so they're, they're basically challenging him. If you are who you say that you are, if you can do the things that you claim that you can do, that is the rebuilding of the temple after destroying it. If you can do that, then come down from the cross. And then what accusation do we have of the leaders, the elders of the people and the chief priests? They come and say the same thing concerning Jesus. What? Look how he saved other people. He delivered other people and yet he cannot deliver himself. If he is the king of Israel, Prove it now. Come down from the cross and we will believe your messianic claim. You claim to be the son of God. Now you have to understand what they were literally saying to Jesus. Number one, they were saying, look at how he saved other people and yet he can't save himself. And then again, he claimed himself to be the Messiah. Indeed, if he is the Messiah, let him come down from the cross and we will believe the things that he has been saying about himself. Even what things did he say about himself? He claimed to be the son of God. They understand and what they are saying is he claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be a divine being. If indeed he is God, then cannot God save himself? So they took him from saving others as the Messiah to saving himself as God himself. But nevertheless, they mocked him and simply saying that he trusts in God. And if God will have this so-called Messiah, then let God prove that he is desired by God let God save him if he wants him. So they ridiculed and mocked Jesus while Jesus was on the cross. And the whole while, both the passerbyers as well as the chief priests and elders of the people, they were challenging Jesus to come down from the cross. And this takes my mind back because I'm a Mississippi boy. It takes my mind back to a song that was sang by the Mississippi Mass Choir. It wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. And indeed, they were exactly right. It was not the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was the love of God that held Jesus to the cross. Why? Because he could have come down from the cross. But if Jesus had come down from the cross and took their challenge, all the world would be lost. All of mankind would be lost. Every single one of us would die and go straight to hell and be eternally separated from God. Jesus had to pay the full price, not only in not drinking of the wine, but suffering the full penalty of death. He had to stay on that cross to accomplish the will of the Father, to accomplish salvation for his people. And in Jesus stand on the cross, we see the fulfillment of what he said in John 3 and 16. For in this way, God demonstrated his love for the world. How did God demonstrate his love for the world? By like this, by allowing his son to stay on that cross and suffer and die for our sins. This is the demonstration of the Father's love. This is the demonstration of Jesus' love, and this is the demonstration of Jesus' total obedience to his Father. Why? No man takes my life, but I'll get back to that at the end. Enough of that.
enough of that because I'm thinking that this should have been, been short. But anyway, so they hurled the accusations and mockery at Jesus, challenging him to come down from the cross. And notice again, we see in Matthew's condensed account, he made no mention of the conversion of the thief on the right. Okay. But anyway, let's continue. 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Okay, now let's talk about this section. And again, can't help but notice the condensation, how Matthew just gives us a condensed account of this. So he says at the sixth hour, that is roughly from about 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., there were supernatural things taking place. And all throughout these, these events, there will be supernatural things taking place. But what is happening? Darkness covers the land. All of the land, there is a great darkness that fell. And you hear Jesus cry out, my God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, Lamak Sabachthani. In other words, why have you forsaken me? Now, what is simply happening here is, as the darkness has come, this is the appointed hour time when Jesus takes upon himself the sin, the sins of the world. Jesus is quoting again Psalm 22. I think that's verse number one, literally, my God, my God, that deals with the suffering servant. And in this quote, you have to remember, as Jesus makes this quote, you have to take in the full import of all of the psalm that pertains to Jesus at this moment. Because what? Psalm 22 beginning deals with the suffering servant. At the end of the chapter, it deals with the rejoicing servant. Why? That rejoicing servant has now been rescued by God, which speaks of the resurrection of the dead. But we're not going to get into all of that. So all of that is involved. Now, Jesus is not being separated from the Father in his divine spirit. That is, the separation of Jesus is not here a separation of the Godhead. For God is one. And therefore, God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit can never be separated. Jesus always spoke of the unity that he has with the Father as God. But as Jesus' body, his human body, along with what? As we talked about in Matthew chapter 26, go back and look at that when I talked about the suffering of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus with his human body and his human spirit are now taking upon himself the full measure of God's judgment, the full separation of what sin does between man and God. And therefore, Jesus began to experience something even greater than what he experienced in the garden of Gethsemane. Because remember what Jesus said, if possible, let this cup cup of separation of my spirit, my human spirit, human spirit, human spirit from your spirit. Let this be taken from me. The full weight now is upon Jesus. And as he experienced this, he begins to cry out unto the father, my God. And you can understand and see the expression of pain and ethos in Jesus's voice at pathos as Jesus cries to his father because of what is taking place. Why? 
again at that moment when the darkness come darkness is always a symbol of judgment it is a symbol of judgment it is that moment that God the Father is now officially placing the weight of mankind's sin upon the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, okay? And Jesus just cries out at that moment. And so those who were standing there heard Jesus crying out and they were confused and they thought that because Eloi, Eloi sounds very uh, similar to Elijah and they thought that Jesus was calling for Elijah. So those who were still in their mockery, in their mockery, were wanting to see, but before then, as Jesus was crying out, one of the one of the one man felt some sense of compassion on Jesus, and he went and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a or put it on a stick, put it on a stick to reach up to give to Jesus with the sponge so that he could moisten his mouth and 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 kind of re alleviate the thirst that he was experiencing at that time. So what do we understand too? This wine. This wine was different from the concoction that the soldiers were trying to give Jesus in the beginning. The soldiers wanted to give Jesus a concoction that would lessen the pain. This wine was given to Jesus to moisture his mouth. So as this man was trying to help Jesus to moisture his mouth to alleviate the thirst, Others who were mocking him earlier saying, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah is really going to come and try and save him. And then we heard Jesus cry out in Matthew's account as he's giving again, condensed version with a loud voice and notice and yielded up his spirit. Now, let me make you understand the importance of this word. Jesus continually said, I believe it's in John chapter 10 about the good shepherd who gives his life. And then even again, no man takes my life from me. So here we have the fulfillment of these words. They did not kill Jesus. Jesus yielded up his own spirit. That is at the proper time that into which the full payment. And see, that's why I hate to get into all of the different accounts when he gets it with John, when he says to tell the style, it is paid. It is paid at the full moment that all of the judgment of God, the complete weight of sin was placed on him and the full measure of God's judgment was given unto Jesus to deal with man's sin. Jesus at that time, according to the will of God, yielded up his spirit. In other words, no person could kill Jesus. Jesus had to give up his life. And that's why we see in the gospel accounts, he yielded his spirit. And that's what he did. They didn't kill Jesus. Jesus at determining that all of the price for sin had now been paid, yielded up his spirit, and as we see in other accounts, that's why he cried out in the loud voice, his final words, it is finished. That is, it is paid. And when we get into John, we'll talk about that even more. But anyway, now let's continue on. Verse number 50, 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Okay. At the death of Jesus, we saw 
supernatural things taking place. First, it says the veil of the temple was torn. Now, this is important. This is the, the large curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place. It was in the most holy place that the Shekinah, or some people call it the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah glory of God shine. That is the present God localized his presence in the most holy place. And it was in the most holy place. Men were not allowed to go there except the high priest. And he could only go there one time, a, one time per year. That is Yom Kippur, Kippur, the day of atonement. And he can only go in there during that particular time with blood, blood for himself and blood for the people. But the whole point is the most holy place, that curtain that was split, it separated the holy place where the priest would come. The priest would come from the most holy place. Nobody was allowed except the high priest at that time that I just told you about. That curtain that separated the most holy place, which was an indication of God's presence, God's presence. That curtain was split from top to bottom. That indicated two things. Man, all men by the death of Jesus, what Jesus accomplished on the cross are now allowed into the presence of God. All men by the sacrifice of Jesus are welcomed into the presence of God. And notice, notice now how the curtain was torn from top to bottom. If the curtain was torn from bottom to top because it was a high curtain, you can see the curtain being torn by men. But because the curtain was torn from the top, First, unto the bottom, the curtain was torn by the hands of God. And therefore, God himself is saying, I accept the sacrifice of my son. And therefore, I myself welcome all men into my presence by faith in my son, because of the offering of my son, because of the death of my son on this cross, I myself welcome you into my presence. And that's the importance of the veil being split. But nevertheless, so the veil was split. Other supernatural things happened. There was a great earthquake to the so much. Now, I cannot imagine this because I can see earthquakes. The earth, I can understand an earthquake and things trembling. But rocks began to split. Imagine that. Great rocks, all of a sudden, that has nothing to do with an earthquake. The earthquake don't, doesn't make rocks just split, not unless it's rocks associated with the ground itself, but not just simply rocks on top of the ground splitting. But these are supernatural things taking place at the death of Jesus. That's why you can see the soldiers saying what they said. But nevertheless, let's keep going. Let's just deal with it. The tombs, that is, saints who had recently died were resurrected at the death of Jesus. So when Jesus breathed his last, all of these supernatural events taking place, there was a resurrection of the dead, a bodily resurrection of the dead of saints who had recently died, who remained, I keep this part, keep this part straight, they remained in their tombs until 53, after Jesus resurrected from the dead. So that means that it was after the resurrection of the dead, they actually left their tombs and went into the cities and appeared unto many and went back to their own families. So we saw another supernatural event, resurrection of the dead of saints who had recently died. They, ride, they rose from the dead at the death of Jesus. They left their tombs when Jesus himself resurrected from the dead. Now, what you have to understand about this resurrection of the saints is this was not the final resurrection of the saints. 
This was a similar resurrection like the resurrection of Lazarus. That is, these people who died, who, who were resurrected at this time, died again. They died again. This was not a resurrection unto immortality. Because why? Jesus is the first fruits of those who were resurrected from the dead to immortality, never to die again, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. These people simply had a bodily resurrection to go back and die once again. Otherwise, other, if they did not, they would be here even to this day. Okay, so they died sometime later in the future. But all of this was simply done to bear witness that something incredible had taken place. That is the death of the Messiah. And they themselves were a witness to these events. Okay. Anyway, so as these things began to happen, you got the Roman soldiers. Matthew gives our attention there. And they're seeing all of these things because they were set as guards over Jesus's tomb. And they were uh, watching the tomb and as they're seeing the darkness taking place and the earthquakes and the rocks are breaking and all of this stuff starting to happen, quite a it would scare you to death. <laughs> and they began, they began to be very afraid and they began to say to themselves as they saw all of these supernatural events, and you have to understand what they said and what they did not say. So I do not agree with the interpretation that they have here when it said, truly, this was the son of God. Now, that's not a good interpretation because it would lead you to believe that they have Christian or Jewish beliefs that Jesus was what the Jewish Messiah and that Jesus was what the son of God, the Jewish God, the son of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. This is not what they said, nor is this the language of the Greek text that is here. What the Roman soldiers most likely said was because they are Gentiles not having a true solid understanding of Jesus and of Jewish theology and the things associated. And what the Greek text said, they said was truly this was a son of a God or a son of the God. So they said they simply called Jesus one of their divine figures. So in other words, they were not saying as we would say the son of God, they were saying in their pagan mentality, a son of the gods, a son of the gods. Why? For the Gentile Greeks, the Romans had many gods and they were attributing to Jesus to be one of these great figures, sons of the gods because of what was taking place. And then he talks about Matthew, the women that were still there. That is Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus cast seven demons, Mary, the mother of Joseph, as well as we'll also talk about <laughs> later on in other gospels. Let's not go through all of this issue, but the mother of James and John were also there. The sons of Zebedee were also there. Interesting to see. Now we understand later on in other gospel account that John, the apostle of Jesus was there, but it is, but it is interesting to note how apart from John, no other disciple of Jesus is mentioned in being there. There is no mention of Peter. There is no mention of, of the rest of them. There is only the mention of John, sad to say. And still we can see what? How the women were loyal to Jesus. And it was these women who were disciples, that is, followers of Jesus who took care of Jesus financially in his ministry when Jesus ministered for those three, approximately three and a half years. So these are those women who followed him and took care of Jesus. 
giving him the financial support that he needed in his ministry. They are here at the death of Jesus, watching him at the cross. Okay, let's come to the close. 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Okay, so now we go into Matthew again, a condensed account of the, of the burial of Jesus. He mentions here by name, Joseph of Arimathea. And, and we also note that there was another man who was also present at this particular time, even though Matthew did not uh, mention this particular man. And this was the one who had brought spices for the anointing of Jesus's body. This was Nicodemus. Okay. But nevertheless, Jesus has now died and Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the council, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a secret follower of Jesus. And we get all of this information once again by what? Harmonizing the accounts, looking into the other records of the gospel concerning these events. But nevertheless, Joseph was a member of the council who was secretly a, a disciple of Jesus. He was looking for the kingdom of God. He was a believer in Jesus. And so therefore he had a new tomb and he requested that the body of Jesus should be given to him and he could bury Jesus. And along with Nicodemus, they would come, Nicodemus, and, and also no doubt Joseph would assist him in anointing the body of Jesus with the spices and preparing it for burial and bury Jesus's body in uh, Joseph's new tomb into which no man had ever lain. And we also see it once again, the women, Mary Magdalene, as well as the other Mary watching these things nearby. 62. On the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to arise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead and the last deception would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Okay, now that they have Jesus buried, it comes to the remembrance of the chief priests and, and, and the scribes that Jesus had said that he would rise from the dead. What I find so humorous about that is here you have unbelievers, the chief priests, remembering that Jesus said that he would rise from the dead, but his own disciples that Jesus told again and again and again that he would rise from the dead. They just didn't get it. They didn't remember it. And for some reason, it couldn't come to them that Jesus had said he would rise from the dead. But these crooks remembered it. So what did they do? They went to Pilate to make certain that the disciples would not come and steal Jesus's body away by the night. So it was the Sabbath day they went to Pilate. And they told Pilate about these events that Jesus said that he would rise from the dead. And so they asked Pilate to secure the grave, to make the grave secure for them. And notice what they said, because if, the, if he didn't, his disciples may come, steal the body away, then proclaim, like Jesus said, that he would rise from the dead. And notice they called Jesus that deceiver. And what? 
And the last deception, what last deception? The deception of resurrection from the dead will be worse than the first. What is the first deception? The deception in which he claimed himself to be Messiah, son of God. So the last deception would be worse than the first deception. Why? Because it would prove indeed he is the Messiah. It would prove that he is God in the flesh, the son of God, if he should rise from the dead. So the whole point that's working here is deception. They are trying to stop deception. But the irony of all of this is the deceivers are they themselves. They are the ones who will ultimately deceive the people with the great lie that we'll see in the next chapter. So I got to stop right there. I can't get into it. But nevertheless, what's the response of Pilate? Pilate gives them soldiers so that they can make the grave secure. And as he puts the soldiers, since the soldiers give them under the authority of the Jewish priests to secure the grave of Jesus, he have them set a Roman seal on the stone, on the stone that was rolled in front of the grave, a wax seal of some sort, some kind of a seal to seal the grave with the Roman seal. And you, can, you are not allowed under the threat of death to break this Roman seal, just like we're going to find out with the Roman soldiers that under the threat of death, they were not allowed to allow anything to happen to the body of Jesus. But we're not going to get into all of that yet. We're just going to simply end in chapter 27 with the death of Jesus. So now what do we have? We now have Jesus is coming to Golgotha where he is put on the cross in Matthew's what? His condensed accounts coming to the cross. The soldiers offering him a sort of a drink to drink to deaden or to alleviate some of the pain of the cross and Jesus rejecting any relief from pain that he may take upon himself, the full weight and judgment of God, everything that crucifixion has for us so that you will know, so that I will know there is no sin that God cannot forgive. There is nothing that the blood of Jesus cannot provide atonement for. Why? He took the full weight of God's judgment and he did not escape any of it. So there is nothing that we can do. And I've heard people say, suppose you do this. Can God forgive you for this? Can God? He took the total full measure of God's judgment because what you have to understand is on the cross, Jesus was not suffering the judgment of man. On the cross, Jesus was suffering the judgment of God to man because of man's sin and he suffered it all. Therefore, what? There is no sin under which a person cannot be forgiven. I don't care what it is. Jesus paid the full price. And as he see on the cross, what we also see closing out 27, they ridiculed him. Passersby ridiculed him. The chief priests and elders ridiculed him, challenging him to come down from the cross. But Jesus refused because it was the will of the father that Jesus remained. And what would have happened if Jesus had come down? The world would be lost. We will forever be lost in our sins. And Satan will have eternal dominion over this world forever and Ever. But Jesus remained on that cross. And what do we see? All of a sudden darkness comes upon the land. Jesus began to fully take upon him the judgment that comes from God. We see him crying out to the father. And finally, Jesus gave up his own spirit. No one took his life from him. He gave up his own spirit. The soldiers were so uh, uh taken aback because of the things that had taken place that they began to say, surely this man was indeed some sort 
of a God. And all of a sudden we saw miraculous things, rocks and earthquakes and saints resurrecting from the dead. And after Jesus resurrection, going into the city later on, they themselves would return to the grave. They themselves would die. And finally we see what? The chief priests, they who are the true deceivers, who call Jesus a deceiver, trying to make certain that the disciples don't come and steal Jesus's body because they remembered something that the disciples didn't remember, that Jesus had promised. He prophesied that he would rise from the dead. And so they had, therefore, the Roman soldiers to secure the grave to keep the disciples of Jesus from stealing his body by night. And with that, we conclude chapter 27. But that does not conclude these events at all because as Psalm 22, and Jesus quoted this often as we saw in chapter 27. Remember I told you Psalm 22 is all about the suffering of Jesus. As the first part of Psalm 22 talked about the suffering of God's servant, the end of Psalm 22 talks about the glory of God's suffering, the redeeming of God's suffering, God himself bringing God's, his own servant out of his suffering and that servant of God having victory, or in other words, resurrection from the dead. So therefore you join me as we get into chapter 28, which is the highlight, the highlight of the gospel account. All gospel account is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So join me as we get into the final chapter as we look into this glorious event in chapter 28. See you then, guys. Producing these videos take a lot of time and they take resources too, guys. All the, the computers, the cameras, the blah, 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 blah. They take resources. So if God touches your mind and your heart, bless this ministry. If it helps you, if these teachings help you, bless the ministry, send a donation, or even become a monthly partner with me so that I can continue to do these things. I don't do it, I don't do it to make money, God forbid, but I do it that the ministry may be supported and that I might continuously, with joy, because it does give my heart joy, to continuously bring these lessons to you for your benefit, for your spiritual enrichment, okay? So help me out.